Good afternoon and welcome to the 118th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we will talk about authoritarianism in the time of COVID-19 with historians Richard Bodek and Richard E. Frankel. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 2nd, 2020, there are 25,835,301 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 25,559,850 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 6,086,747 are in the United States. That's up from 6,045,064 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 184,974 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 183,870, yet another day with more than 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. <clears throat> Headline is, Detroit Democratic Activist's Death from COVID-19 Leaves a Big Void. This appeared in the Huffington Post May 15th by Daniel Marins. Soon after the state of Michigan created the Education Achievement Authority in 2012, it prompted criticism from Detroiters for stripping city parents of control over their kids' school and subjecting low-income black residents to experimental education methods. Thomas A. Wilson, Jr., a retired physical education teacher, led the charge, writing letters to the editor, phoning in to his favorite radio talk shows, and persistently lobbying state lawmakers about it. Through it all, he stayed positive, flashing a pearly white smile underneath his signature mustache, recalled former Michigan State Senator Bertram Johnson, who was often on the receiving end of Wilson's articulate charm offensives. Tom didn't beat you up, Johnson said. He just did it with such poise and grace. I had this phrase, you can improve me with information, he added, and that's what Tom would do. Johnson credits the activism of Wilson and others like him for pushing the Michigan legislature to shutter the EAA a few years later. Wilson, a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, planned to bring that same rigor and passion to the effort to help former Vice President Joe Biden defeat Donald Trump in Michigan, a key battleground state in the presidential election. Asked in March whether Biden would turn out the voters, could turn out the voters who stayed home when Hillary Clinton was the Democratic presidential nominee in 2016, Wilson told the Huffington Post, yeah, and I'm going to help him. He would never get the chance. In mid-April, Wilson got sick from the novel coronavirus. Wilson did not drink or smoke, and he swam 50 laps at a local pool three times a week. He did not take any medication aside from his daily vitamins. 
Still, the disease worked its way through his body with brutal efficiency. Eileen, his wife of 55 years, summoned an ambulance when he began to have trouble breathing. Wilson died on April 22nd, eight days after being admitted to the hospital. Wilson spent his last days on earth all alone. It was devastating, Eileen said. I feel very disgusted by it because I just feel he shouldn't have had to go out like that. Local Democratic officials admit that it will be a challenge to replace his organizing power ahead of the general election in November. It's a big void, said Rick Blocker, chairman of the Democratic Party in Michigan's 14th congressional district in which Wilson served as sergeant at arms. He never asked for the spotlight. He just always wanted to be a soldier. He did it all, literally, said state rep Sherry Gay Dagnago. He was larger than life as an activist. He gave of his time and his life in advocating what was best for our city. In addition to his duties as the 14th District's party's sergeant at arms, Wilson was a board member of the Black Caucus of the Wayne County Democratic Party, a precinct delegate for the state Democratic Party, an active member of Detroit's teachers union, a leading education advocate, a frequent letter writer to the Detroit Free Press, and a longstanding participant in the city's elite political listserv known simply as the email group or EMG. When he wasn't raising his grandchildren, in his home with his wife Eileen or visiting his aging mother, he was busy working the grill to hand out hamburgers and hot dogs to city cops during police appreciation week and planting marigolds, geraniums, and impatiens as part of a neighborhood beautification program. The only day that did not involve a community or political meeting of any kind, his wife recalled, was Sunday, when he could be found serving as an usher at St. Scholastica Catholic Church. Wilson had varied tastes, relishing country music as well as jazz, blues, and some rock and roll. Likewise, he mixed his solemn political pronouncements with a generous helping of humor. Wilson's allegiance to the Democratic Party was rooted in his appreciation of the party's support for black civil rights and opportunities for social mobility of the kind he enjoyed, according to Eileen. Eileen blames Trump for Wilson's death, pointing in particular to the president's closure of a White House National Security Council office dedicated to fighting pandemics and similar threats. The department, known as the Directorate, for global health security and biodefense was in fact merely restructured and placed under different supervision, though critics maintain that the lack of an office dedicated to those matters exclusively hampered the federal government's response to the coronavirus outbreak. He's got a lot of blood on his hands for that, Eileen said. Okay, we're going to turn to our discussion for today, and I'm very excited to speak to my guests about authoritarianism in the age of COVID-19. Let me introduce them. Richard Bodek is professor of history at the College of Charleston. His research and teaching interests roam widely from science fiction to detective fiction to popular culture and radical politics to violence. He's taught courses in all of these areas. He's also written about all of them. His interest in intellectual history prompted his co-edited volume, The Fruits of Exile, Central European Intellectual Immigration to America in the Age of Fascism. His continuing interest in cultural anthropology emerges in the co-edited volume, Maroonage Marinage, Maroons in Culture, History, and Society. Finally, his love of the Golden Twenties prompted his edited translation of Claire Bergman's 1932 German novel, which was banned by the Nazis, What Will Become of the Children? At present, he's working on a history of murder in occupied Germany. My second guest is Richard E. Frankel. He's currently associate professor of modern German history 
and the Sagrera Family Memorial BORSF Endowed Professor in History at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. His research interests center on nationalism, anti-Semitism, immigration, and political culture. His first book was Bismarck's Shadow, The Crisis of German Leadership and the Transformation of the German Right, 1898 to 1945, which came out with Berg Publishers. His latest book is States of Exclusion, A New Wave of Fascism, which uses German history, particularly the period of the Third Reich, to help us better understand the current situation in Trump's America. Frankel is now seeking to understand anti-Semitism from an even broader global perspective, and he's working on a new book-length project tentatively titled Globalizing Hate, the Impact of Globalization on Modern Anti-Semitism in Germany and the United States from 1880 to 1940. Richard Bodak and Richard Frankel, thank you so much for making time today to come on COVID Calls. Thank you, thank you for having me. So let me remind people that you can get your questions in, just put them into the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter if you want, just tag me at US of Disaster, or some people still like to get questions in via email, and that's fine too. You can send them to me uh, at sgk23 at drexel.edu. So let's um, start the conversation the way uh, we usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Rich Bodek, can I start with you, please? Sure. I am in my office in Charleston, South Carolina, and our seven-day average is 210 cases per day. Are you under still uh, some kind of uh, stay-at-home orders? How relaxed are the, are the various different protocols there at this time? That is a very unfortunate question. Uh, we have no stay-at-home protocols at all. And the bedroom community I live in, Mount Pleasant, which is on the other side of the river from Charleston, has just lifted the uh, requirement that we wear masks in, uh, in stores and grocery stores, restaurants. So a lot of us are expecting things to get worse fast. I don't want to draw you into any uh, political discussions that you don't want to get into, but I do want to know if uh, your college is reopened for in-person classes at this time or no? We'll be reopening for in-person classes, uh, hybrid learning in a couple of weeks, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. So hybrid means the students can elect to be distant or they can elect to be in the classroom? Right, and the classroom, um, the, the maximum caps per classroom have been dropped. So most courses cannot have all students in the classroom at, um, at one time. A few courses can, but we're going to be trying to do both live and Zoom at the same time. It's an interesting experiment. Wow, okay. You're gonna have your hands full as a teacher this fall for sure. Uh, Richard Frankel, let me turn to you. Where are you calling from and, and how's it looking there? Yeah, so I'm in, I'm in Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, Louisiana was one of the early hotspots um, for COVID, largely due to um, uh, Mardi Gras in New Orleans and spread out from there. Um, it, it, it spread to just about every single parish in the state. Um, and our governor, we, we're unusual in the South, in the deep South, that we have a Democratic governor. Um, and he was willing um, to institute a, a whole series of um, restrictions um, early on, which did actually have the effect of, of um, 
stopping the expansion of it, in fact, reducing it. Um, I think uh, he was under tremendous pressure from Republicans uh, in the state to loosen that. And I think um, that played a role in his decision to loosen some of those restrictions sooner than he probably should have. And so we've, we're also unique in a sense that we've actually had two spikes. Uh, we're, we've had our second wave and we're really in the midst of it already, um, still. Um, and so in fact, he's gone back. So we were at phase three uh, at one point and we're now back to phase two, which also now involves a mask mandate. Um, and like in many places, it's, it's become politicized. And so there are certainly people out there who, who don't wear them. Hmm. Um, but certainly more than more than previously. So, um, yeah, we're still we're still dealing with it. We're still, unfortunately, among the highest numbers uh, in the country right now. I've had the opportunity in this COVID call series to talk to uh, many different guests in New Orleans mm -hmm. uh, and in Cancer Alley, but haven't really gotten the perspective much. Um, maybe once from Lafayette what's happening with the University of Louisiana Lafayette, same as Rich is describing or different? Well, we're, we've already begun. We started mm -hmm. actually a couple of weeks ago. And the you know, when we started, the uh, policy was essentially that you know, they wanted a certain percentage to be on campus, um, but largely they left it up to colleges and departments. And so we've, in the history department, um, been able to to make our decisions and so for example I am teaching all online mm -hmm. this semester um, and others many others are as well and others are doing the hybrid like Rich had described um, and a few have on-campus you know full on-campus classes so and we've done we've taken steps within the classrooms again to limit the numbers we've um, sort of taped out the sections around the desks to make sure that they stay in place, mm -hmm. whether that happens or not. So mm -hmm. you know, we've taken a lot of these steps that I think were based on some of these early ideas about, again, sort of contact, right? Um, right. Um, acquisition of the disease. Um, so yeah, that's where, that's where we are right now. Um, no word yet as to when or if we're going to switch to all online. Um, but yeah, we're, we're already in the midst of it right now. Let me just, Rich, Richard, um, let me just stick with you for one second. Let me also find out um, if, if there's still any activity ongoing in, in Black Lives Matter, in George Floyd-related protests, or if you can give us at least a snapshot of what things were like there in the or late spring, early summer in that regard. In Lafayette. Mm -hmm. um, well, there was. There was actually um, a response to that. There were protests. Uh, we actually had already a movement that had developed prior to this that revolved around a Confederate memorial statue that people have been trying to get take down for years now. It's not it's not so much a new thing. Uh, and so I think that helped. Um, at the same time, of course, Lafayette is also an extremely conservative, Republican-dominated uh, city within Louisiana, which tells you something. Um, and so the fact of getting as many people as there were out and protesting, uh, I think was quite encouraging. Uh, unfortunately, we've also had just within the past, I'd say about two weeks, our own uh, shooting at the hands of police, Trey for Pellerin. I don't know if it did make the national news. It's not as big as, as some of the others, uh, but he was uh, shot in the back by police 11 times um, as opposed to the 
And that happened just before the hurricane, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think that played a role because there were protests very quickly. Um, the police were called out in full uh, military gear, which we've got as well. Um, and in fact, actually, you know, connecting to another disaster, the hurricane that just hit, um, our mayor president has refused, uh, said we will not accept any refugees uh, from the western part of the state as a result of Hurricane Laura because, as he put it, um, they would take advantage, or outside agitators, as he put it, who were mm -hmm. in the protests, would take advantage of Lafayette's um, hospitality with those refugees. And so he's announced, at least as of now, still uh, no refugees. So it's kind of, it's, it's really mixed up in a number of ways wow. in in a lot of what's going on right now. But we, we have, and as I said, unfortunately, we've had this, our own experience right here. Rich Bodek, can I ask you the same question in terms of George Floyd protests? Um, if there's anything still ongoing or what you saw there in Charleston back in, in May and June? Yeah, there are protests that are still ongoing. In fact, there was a protest just uh, this past weekend. And um, we have a very engaged community and I've noticed a few things. One of the things I've noticed is the protesters are very good about staying masked. And so they're aware of the public health situation as well as the political situation. A lot of others walk around town unmasked. So it really is politicized. One thing that has, that has come out of the protest that is a positive is that we had a huge statue of, um, of Calhoun overlooking the city. And it has come down. And it's come down because the mayor and the city council have wanted it to come down. It's a small thing. And uh, in and of itself, it's not enough. But it indicates that even in South Carolina, progress is possible. It's slow. It's incremental. It's not nearly what we want, but the glimmerings of hope at least are there. Mm -hmm. Had there already been a, a consistent sort of drumbeat to to take that that statue down, or was it a more abrupt sort of action? Consistent drumbeat would be too strong. There have been murmurings, but I think until a few months ago, most of us just expected it would outlast us. And then all of a sudden, it didn't, which is great. And I will say just as a uh, personal anecdote, first Calhoun came down, but the pillar on which he stood was there. The pillar has come down. And as a, uh, a German historian, I went and picked up fragments of the Calhoun pillar in the same way that I had collected some fragments of the Berlin Wall as a symbol of what once seemed to be permanent oppression that is now gone. So I, I happily have those on my desk. You have those there in the office? Oh yeah. Can you well, show us? Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Granite. Oh, well, who? Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. So we got three historians here on this call, so we can uh, we got to be careful. We uh, we could get lost in the past, which is not a bad thing. But let's start a bit in the present, and then we're and then we're going to work with comparative. Um, and I want to just get. I'm going to ask you a question first, just about how you're seeing the way that the pandemic 
is accentuating a very tense political moment in the United States. And I, and I know that's always perspectival. For some people, it's always a tense political moment in the United States. But you know, generally speaking, those tensions in the Trump era have come to the fore in ways that most of us have not seen in our, in our lifetimes. Um, and so now we layer in COVID-19 and the murder of George Floyd. How are those events um, creating new politics, accentuating things? Just give us your sort of general sense of the context of the way COVID-19 is shaping the political moment. Um, Richard, can I start with you on that? Sure. Um, well, I think it, uh, the, the coronavirus has really um, revealed just how deep um, and significant the divisions are in this country. Uh, that something as as neutral as a disease, right, that has no political leanings one way or the other that affects everybody the same way, um, could be politicized. You would think, you know, all the other things that have been politicized, this would be one thing that people could come together on um, around the science and, and deal with it. And you'd think, I, you know, I would think also that a president, especially in an election year, um, would want to demonstrate his ability to tackle a major crisis like this and deal with it and and put it behind him as quickly as possible um and yet we didn't see that and for you know, i think that's for a variety of reasons um and certainly once it was clear that it was going out of control that he then um picked up on the politicizing of it especially with the masks for example um so it's it's another example of of divisions, but I think the fact that something like this could become politicized in it, and um, when it you know again all kinds of reasons it shouldn't have, I think that's really really um, revealing that we have, we have really serious divisions. This is not you know surface appearance that these divisions are that strong that people are willing to risk their lives and the lives of others to make a political statement right and to support a, a president. Is really essentially what they're doing. Rich, let me get your same take on this this question. Yeah, um, I know we're all historians, and I don't want to do too much inside baseball, but I want to say that the people who I trained with um, always wanted to look at things differently and see what happens if we take a different angle. And so I want to try out or trot out a different angle, and that is as we were getting closer to the election and as Donald Trump was looking at the size of his base and at the sort of, of popularity he had, I think that even before the pandemic became serious, maybe especially before the pandemic became serious, we were in danger of, um, of state and some kind of paramilitary um, anti-democratic action. There's no way we can prove this, but I think it's possible that the pandemic has mitigated the kind of actions that Trump can take in that a number of people who might have otherwise been sympathetic to state-sponsored violence and authoritarian moves 
draw back at the obvious lack of scientific integrity and really sanity in this administration's um, lack of dealing with the pandemic. Again, I, I, I'm not saying that, um, that, that things would necessarily have been better one way or the other, but I do wonder if the pandemic might be limiting this president's ability to really employ violence against American citizens. Hmm. I, that's fascinating co context on that. And I guess I hadn't thought of it quite that way. To me, it also speaks probably to the fact that when we talk about the pandemic, we probably should be talking about 50 different pandemics because the way you're, what you're describing, Rich, makes me think that that possibility, proclivity to violence is probably quite different regionally and maybe even down into, into sort of state level, subnational levels. I don't know, Richard, did you, what did you, I like Rich's provocation. What do you think? I mean, I, I, I disagree on a, on a few aspects of it. And again, it's, I think it's, it's a rational approach that you're, you're taking, Rich. Um, it makes sense that it would. But again, I mean, the, the, what, what Trump has created right now, you know, for, for months now, is, is a world in which the pandemic's basically, it's over. It's taken care of, right? He succeeded. He, he, he kept the Chinese out, according to him, and that was really all that was necessary. Um, and so uh, in his world, as you can see when he travels, everything, is, his rhetoric still is that it's over. Um, and so he doesn't feel any hesitance uh, to, use, to use violence. Of course, he's also sending them into cities that are run by Democrats, where people are actually aware of the reality of the situation. You see the protesters, as you said, who are wearing masks when they go out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think you know, the part of the problem is that we're dealing with two different realities. And this is what makes politics in general so difficult and, and makes solving something like the pandemic uh, that much more difficult because we're not dealing with the same realities, really. Um, those who are in his world, those who, who watch the news that he does and listen to him and believe in him, um, believe the same things, that the, the pandemic is largely finished. Um, and therefore, the new danger right now is these, you know, these rioters, you know, whoever they are, um, as Trump describes them. So I don't think I don't think it's actually limited him. And I don't think his his base feels limited in any way because of course the Republican party as well hasn't done anything really in any concrete way to criticize um, his actions with regard to the pandemic, you know, maybe a few here and there. Um, but even on the violence right now, you hear nobody. Um, Mitt Romney, maybe once or twice, but otherwise they're silent. So he's, he's controlled. I mean, he's, he's basically shaped this world in which now he can, mm do what he wants. I don't disagree with you narrowly. Mm -hmm. In Trump's world and among Trump's supporters, mm -hmm. the pandemic is either overblown or non-existent or gotten past or whatever. But the, the instruments of violence that he would really mm -hmm. ideally like to use, the army, mm. the military, Mm. They are 
at least I think, hesitant because they understand what a pandemic can do. And so much as he and his supporters would have no problems using all sorts of state-based violence, I'm not sure that, I, or I think because of the pandemic, I think his ability to employ that kind of violence now is more limited than if it than it otherwise might have been in a non-pandemic uh, situation. Just want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about authoritarianism and COVID-19 with Rich Bodak and Richard Frankel. I want to just veer over for a second into maybe into the world of political science, but um, let just let's do some definitional things here for a second. And I know I'm hesitant to sometimes grade democracies, but as we talk about what's happening in America right now, we do grasp for measures, we grasp for goalposts, they can be quantitative, for me they're usually qualitative, but you know, in any given day, I turn on the news, I hear um, fascism, authoritarianism, police state, failed state, um, failing democracy, uh, police uh, state violence, which Richard just invoked. I wonder, um, we don't have to define each of them in a textbook way, but with all of those terms floating around, how do you like to hear from each of you on how you how you define authoritarianism, I guess, or how you define this moment, you know, so that we have some way to compare the present to the past? Would it, would either of you be willing to pick that question up? Probably both of us would be more than happy. To okay, pick. well, well, Rich, let me let, let me start with you, Rich, and then we'll hand it over to Richard on this. All right, I authoritarianism to me means uh, the leader says to the population, think what you want, but obey. Fascism says, agree with everything that the leader says. Indeed, try to imagine what the leader will say or will want in the future. Mm -hmm. Agree with it even before it's stated. Try to get ahead. And uh, German historians will know I'm taking this from Ian Kershaw. Mm -hmm. Okay. Police state, legitimacy is largely gone. The state must use violence or its threat to maintain order. Failed state, there's no order to maintain. Okay. Richard, what do you think? How, what would you add to that? Well, actually, I like, the, I like the definition of authoritarianism. I mean, you know, it's... It's by no means a dictatorship. Um, it is very top-down, very um, uh, situation with con power concentrated at the top. Again, going back to German history, the first German state that was created by Bismarck was essentially an authoritarian state. It had certain democratic features to it. Uh, there was, to a degree, freedom of thought. There was censorship of the press, but not, not complete. Um, and there was, some historians would argue, the, the possibility of, of further movement in a democratic direction had the First World War not occurred. Um, whereas fascism, uh, to me, I mean, honestly, I don't, 
it's in the title of my book, uh, and you pointed out it's, it's a big discussion going on right now. And honestly, um, I it's an interesting argument to talk about what constitutes fascism, mm -hmm. but I think practically it's a little less helpful. Um, you can talk about, of course, ultranationalism. You can talk about the the leader figure as personification of the of the nation. Um, and the law and so forth, the glorification of violence for its own good, a kind of social Darwinistic view of things and so forth, a very strict us versus them view of the world. Um, but when you get down to sort of the practical question of, you know, are we, are we in fascism? Are we going toward fascism? Is Trump a fascist? I, I think those kinds of questions are less important because, of course, there are lots of systems that are short of fascism that are extremely unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And whether someone is in a concentration camp in a system that is not fascist, they're not going to feel any better that, that at least it's not a fascist system that put them in a concentration camp or shot their family. Um, and so I think, again, from an academic point of view, from a historical point of view, you can talk about it. Um, and I do certainly think there are features of it, you know, in, in, um, in process right now. Um, but again, I think the, the, the key feature in what, what I wrote about in my book is, is really the, the, the division, the exclusion, politics mm -hmm. of exclusion, which I think is really at the heart of what Trump is all about, which is separating us and them, creating this Trump's, Trump's version of an American national community, like Hitler did with the German national community or a racial community, uh, defining who's in and who's out and removing those who mm -hmm. don't along. Um, and that doesn't necessarily involve murder. There's all kinds of ways to do it. And Hitler didn't, you know, turn to complete extermination until much later in his, in his um, time in office. So I think we can talk, I think it's more fruitful to talk about, in a sense, the kinds of approaches, the kinds of ideas, the kinds of policies that are being put in place that we see and worry less about whether, you know, how close are we or how many boxes in the fascism checklist you know we've we've already ticked off richard let me let me stay with you and let's let's dive back into the past a little bit and talk about what in your work uh you know in german history or history of authoritarianism fascism more generally um, what you see there that has really resonated with things you're seeing right now you've published a series of articles um history news network people can find your your um, great essays easily just just Google. Um, there's a great one that you published in Salon last year about um, Trump's approach to the press and where you find a lot of resonance there between the way that Nazis and, and Hitler um, vilified the press. So uh, we can't have you unpack your whole corpus because you've written a lot, but I'm curious to know sort of what resonances you're finding especially useful. Right. Uh, and again, to, to first, just to, to, to clarify, too, that when you make these comparisons, it's not equating. A lot of people say you can't, sure. you can't do this because they're not the same. Well, of course, there are differences, certainly, but um, there are uh, similarities that you wouldn't maybe have um, thought of a few years ago that, you, that weren't here a few years ago uh, that are quite significant. I think the division in society, uh, the degree to which we're divided right now, um, is very similar to, to German history, actually, even before the First World War, but certainly that marked the Weimar Republic, that a, a fundamental disagreement over 
the system itself. It wasn't just a question of policy. The parties were not just arguing about, you know, the level of taxation and so forth. They were fundamentally arguing over whether the system should exist or not, whether democracy should exist or not, and whether it should be replaced with a dictatorship or a fascist system or something like that. Uh, and when you get to that point, then democracy becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible. And we're, I think, approaching that. Um, it's very difficult to, to talk to the other side um, uh, about basic issues and try to, to come to common ground. Uh, you know, my stuff is not written for within the Trump circle because it, it, it wouldn't work. Um, I also think this approach to reality, right, that Trump's lies, his breathtaking willingness to just lie about anything and everything, regardless of how insignificant it is, um, is also uh, relevant because it's, it's not even so much, again, that someone agrees with what he says are the facts. It's that people don't know anymore what's real. Right? How can I? How can I know? And so when when he, when Trump says something, and I think we really see this now. This this is when I wrote that article. It was before COVID nineteen, and this is a, a perfect example of it. You know, I said you know when Hitler says they're going, Jews are going to the east to work. Well, maybe they were. You know, if you didn't want to believe how evil Hitler was, that provided you an opportunity to do nothing, right? Because maybe they were. I don't know. And now with this disease, when, when Trump says it's going away or masks aren't necessarily required and so forth, maybe you can inject Clorox, who knows? Um, again, people don't know, right? And that is extraordinarily dangerous, right? I mean, in, in a very real, concrete day-to-day -day sense that, that mm -hmm. I didn't even anticipate when I wrote that article. And again, his, 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 his glorification of violence is just staggering as well. I mean, his, his willingness to uh, not only give him a pass, but actually approve of it is, is one of the closest features, again, that, that, that I would see toward, to fascism. And we just saw that, again, not only with the militia protests, the terrorists going into state government buildings before, but now actually killing people. And Trump, again, not only giving him a pass this time, but actually saying it was legitimate. I think that's, a, that's an enormous threshold to pass, and it's incredibly dangerous. So two things working there simultaneously, what I hear you saying. One is a sort of denialism or the creation of an alternative reality, mm -hmm. uh, Kellyanne Conway's famous alternative facts, I guess, mm -hmm. um, but also an engagement with a, a reality, which is maybe broadcast on the news for everyone to see, and a direct, and a sort of direct refutation of it or a reframing of it, the two seem related, but still somewhat, somewhat separate, and mutually reinforcing both. And from my perspective, in a negative way, mm -hmm. to reaching a common ground of facts in the democracy. Right. No, I agree. I agree. The, just a quick point to what you said too, um, and then Rich, I want to get your take on this as well. Um, I was asked today to send. A, I wrote an essay. I wrote a convocation address last year at Drexel, and I think the title was something like um, "Education in a Time of Crisis." And I was asked to share it again today, and I went back and pulled it up, and I thought, my God, I wrote this before George Floyd was murdered and before COVID-19. Mm. So I was already in the frame of mind of crisis mm -hmm. in last September. Um, yeah. Rich, let me hear from you on, on what you're finding useful in German history to this time. More than I wish. Um, I fundamentally agree with, with, with Richard's points. And 
if I were to take one and run with it, the, what scares me most is that a very large percentage, not necessarily a majority, but a very large percentage of Americans just don't care about democracy anymore. And if we're to follow the polls and assume that the solid 40-odd percent um, of Trump supporters are solidly behind him, that's 40% of the American population that simply doesn't care about democracy, that is perfectly happy to see minorities shot or killed, that does not care about the rights of others. And I think one thing that most, if not all, German historians would agree on is we do not need a majority of a population to be active fascists. All you need is a large percentage. We've got that. And even if, God willing, Joe Biden wins the election, it's not over. 40% of the American population still no longer cares about democracy. And if there is a democratic election, if the Democrats win, somehow these people will have to be brought back into something like an appreciation of what democracy is about. And, and that's hard. And here I'm thinking about where I'm, my, the, the research I'm doing now on post-war Germany. How do you take people who abandoned democracy and build a democracy with them still there? Because it's not like Trump supporters are just going to disappear. And it's not like they're, we, it's not like people who believe in democracy want to shoot them. Democrats don't want to shoot them. That's the point. They may want to shoot Democrats. That's the other point. How can these people be reintegrated into a functioning moral society? That's the tough question. Mm -hmm. That's a tough question we will get to. Well, I, I agree. I, to, I mean, just to build off of that as well, I mean, if you think about the German situation, they experienced that it wasn't, and as you said, if God willing, we have a, a transition of parties um, this year. Uh, that's quite different than what the Germans experienced, right? They were destroyed as a, a you know, in a very real physical sense, the, the country was destroyed. The state no longer existed. They were occupied. Um, and yet, despite all of the realities, and of course, seeing what, what Germans had done to Jews and others throughout Europe, um, they didn't become a democracy in 1949. You know, it took it took at least another 15 years or so. You could argue, mm -hmm. perhaps more, for them to really take to democracy. Um, and obviously, they've taken to it quite strongly since. But you know, that was, if anything, is going to shake you of your your beliefs in liberalism and and authoritarianism. You would think that would have done it, but it didn't. It didn't. Um, and so you're right. I mean, there is no. Um, just turning the page after November or after January um, of next year. It's, it's too well ingrained right now. And, and the, their experience of failure won't come anywhere close, again, to what the Germans experienced after mm. World War II. So how that changes is even more 
challenging, you know, even more problematic, I would argue. Completely agree. I find a deep irony in what you're describing too. If you're, if you're saying it's you know, 15 years after uh, the end of the war, at least um, before Germany approached, West Germany approached some form of democracy we would recognize. I think every American president since the war has taken credit for that. That may <laughs> not be appropriate for them to do that, but it was, uh, you know, with strong influence of the United States in, in some attempt to rebuild democratic institutions in Germany after the war. I, let's extend this discussion thinking post-Trump um, and trying to, it's really a great way to think about, about this. How do you rebuild or re-energize a democracy after a percentage of the population has turned its back on it, mm -hmm. um, some violently? Um, what can you draw from German history in those years, 50s and 60s and 70s, that we could be looking to? Or in other cases where countries have come out of authoritarianism, say South Korea, or I want to say Chile, current situation in Chile leaves me a little bit distressed, but I think it's, it's no longer Pinochet, certainly. What kinds of, of moves do you see in those decades after that we should be attuned to right now in the United States? Rich, to you. Yeah, one of the um, one of the things that really bothered me a lot, desperately, in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election, was when the smart young people who were working for Hillary Clinton said, "Demographics are with us. White middle America is going to disappear. We don't need to worry about them." That was arguably stupid. So if I could at least take a stab, I would be looking towards something like the Tacoon movement that was really important in the 1970s and 1980s. And what the Tacoon movement argued was the biggest lack in many people's lives is a lack of meaning is that they, they feel like the world has been emptied out. And I think if, if we look through much of middle America, much of small town America, we see the, we see the Walmartization of America. Small towns have been hollowed out. People who had meaningful jobs, those jobs are gone. I think that what is really crucial is that a lot of people whom the Democratic Party, I think, in uh, I think the smart again the smart young people who worked for Hillary Clinton, who they thought they could just abandon because demographically they're going to disappear anyway. These aren't necessarily people who will become solid Democrats as their parents and grandparents were, but they've got to be given something so that they feel like they have a stake in the system, not just financial, but something that touches their soul. Because fascism puts something in their soul. It's something ugly, but it puts something in their soul. And I think that is, um, that's what's got to be started. I think, uh, Richard, uh, yeah, I'm going to get your take on that. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I was just thinking, trying to think uh, in a positive sense, you know, looking forward. Um, in terms of similarities and differences to Germany after the war, I mean, one thing that we have um, that Germany didn't after the war is we do actually have a very um, 
vibrant uh, and vocal um, opposition. Um, in Germany, many of the opposition figures, leaders, members were, of course, either killed, um, driven underground or driven out of the country. Um, and it was going to take them quite a while to get back to, you know, to making their case within Germany. And again, that's why you had about the first 15 or 20 years of still conservative, mm -hmm. by authoritarian rule. And one thing that I've been really encouraged about throughout, you know, I, I, I've been writing about this now for, you know, since, uh, yeah, since close to when he took power, um, is the tremendous opposition that's, that's been voiced from the Women's March right at the very beginning. I was, I, I, I felt chills watching that. I didn't expect to see that, you know, that kind of um, expression. We don't see as much, you know, in the United States, people in the streets marching, um, but it's been, it's been there and it's been consistent. It has not weakened really in any way. And if anything, it's, I think it's grown. Uh, and so the fact that there is that element, that, that strong percentage of the population that will be there again, if there is a change uh, in power, um, that's something that the Germans didn't have. And they'll be able to, to get work, get it, get to work right from the very start at, at trying to restore a vision, right, an idea of the United States um, that, again, I mean, people who are, are so into Trump right now, they're, I, they're lost, I think, and in many respects. In the case of Germany, one of the things that changed, again, over the course of 15 to 20 years was literally generational, right? Those people retired, right? Mm -hmm. A young, a new generation in 68 came in and started asking questions. Right about what their parents and grandparents had done, uh, and those people—I I hate to say it—who um, are certainly squarely within the Trump camp right now. I mean, for them to switch would take a tremendous, tremendous acknowledgement on their part of how wrong they were, uh, how 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 deceived they were, and, and normal people don't want to acknowledge those things. It's much easier to believe that you're right. Right and shift the world to fit that, um, and so you know, there 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 are there is an element that is unreachable. If there are people that are on the edge on the on the border, you know, between the two two worlds, maybe they're recoverable, right? Um, and that's worth that's worth going after. So I think we're starting with a much better base than Germany was um, after the Second World War. The majority of the population in Germany after the war didn't acknowledge they were wrong. They, they believed, you know, that they hadn't done anything wrong, um, that they hadn't played a role and so forth. Um, that's not the case here. You know, at least half the country, more than half the country, obviously, I think if you look at the election in 2016, um, never, never bought into that, right? And has been growing in its opposition ever since. So, you know, if there is a change, I think that's, that is certainly a positive thing to, to look, look for going forward. I appreciate the fact that both of you um, do signal though the caution that uh, much of the affinity for the Trump, for Trumpism, if you want to call it that, or for Trump individually, um, issues from places where people, that they find a, there's a lack of meaning, there's a lack of, of economic meaning. And I'm not trying to put the American population or the Trump voter uh, on the couch here and psychoanalyze them. I think they're a real strong, I mean, we can look at structural economic issues here, and I think you both sort of sort of pointed to that. I, I have been 
amazed, even up until this last couple of weeks. You, you hear the story is recirculated once in a while. It says, well, you know, even if Trump is reelected, that he will, in the second term, he'll do um, uh, infrastructure, space program. This, this idea that it's just a, a sort of set of, of policy squabbles and we'll come back to some things that we can agree on. Even Democrats have said this, and we're gonna find something we can all work on and it's building bridges in America. And I think I might have thought that was possible before the election in 2016, but after that election and what we saw in the first month of the administration, I thought, no, he's serious. Or, or the people with, working for him, like Steve Bannon, they're serious. They wanna close the borders. They wanna make a, uh, they wanna empower anti-Semitism. They want to empower racism as tools mm -hmm. to build um, a governing, a minority, but a governing minority, a powerful. Right. I mean, a white, a white democracy basically is what they want to create, right? I mean, they want to exclude everyone else and allow for some input from the white Christian community in the United States, which again is how Trump and his followers view the United States, view what real Americans are. Um, if he comes, you know, if he wins, he's going to finish the job. You know, the, he's going to finish the transformation of the judicial system. He's going to finish the restrictions on voting um, over four years. I mean, God, he won't need four years to do all of that. Um, so, uh, no, I think I think there's, there's nothing to do with policy. He doesn't he doesn't care. It's not about policy for him. You know, it's about himself as leader. It's about power. It's about corruption and graft as much as he can take. Uh, and in general, it's about race. You know, again, I think the economic arguments have shown themselves to be, you know, um, wildly off off base. That the fundamental point on which his followers agree is is race, right? That they, they see the country turning less and less white, um, make America great again, is to go back when white men, white Christian men, you know, call the shots. And so you, you see that more and more. And, and, and again, that's not him alone. This is a trend that's been going on for decades now. He just expresses it, you know, without any dog whistles anymore. He, you know, this is because who he is. And so it's, it's concrete now what he's all about. Um, and it's come down and sort of crystallized to that point where that really is the issue, you know. And I think they see themselves in a very desperate situation where if they don't consolidate power now, it's over for them, right? It's, it's a real, it's an issue of resentment um, and it's an issue of just the, the, the loss of power, which you know is real. And again, some people see that as a bad thing, obviously, but others see it as, you know, as, as evolution and, and uh, you know, a positive development in this country that, yeah. you know, more voices are being heard and shaping, right. you know, who we are. And again, I completely agree. And racism is central to that worldview. And, and as other things disappear from their lives, there's even more room for racism to expand to take up that place. The community is gone, racism expands. Um, opioid crisis, sons, daughters, nephews, brothers dying, racism expands. Manufacturing jobs gone, racism expands. It's not like these things are inventing racism. Racism is at the heart of this. 
But the more other things disappear, the, the less there is to help divert people from racism. And I, I, I agree with Richard in that the hardcore Trumpers will not abandon their ideology, but I would love a post-Trump America in which they can at least be diverted while democracy has a chance to get out of the sickbed that it's in now. They won't be, they won't say we were wrong, but maybe they'll say, I've got this, and this will occupy my time because democracy is very sick no matter what happens. Just to remind people that you're listening to COVID calls and we're having uh, a lively and serious discussion about authoritarianism and COVID-19 in the age of Trump with Richard Frankel and, and Rich Bodek. And to ask you to get your questions in, put them in the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on, on Twitter and just tag at US of disaster. I wanna ask a question about institutions. Um, and because, if I understand, you know, both of you sort of talking about um, spectrum of political systems. And I thought, you know, the comment that was made earlier that, you know, if you define a country as a fascist or a non-fascist state, if you still have people in a, in a concentration camp, that that's uh, splitting hairs. Um, and, and I was surprised even in Chile and even in doing research in Portugal that there are, are very lively academic debates in those countries, like in Portugal. Was it fascism? Was it soft fascism? Was it authoritarianism? Well, the fact is there were people in prisons um, mm -hmm. who were political prisoners or they were sent away. So if you ask them, I think the answer is, you know, pretty clear. I, and I wanna, so with that as a little bit of a, a backdrop, I wanna think about sort of spectrum on how institutions are doing. And, you know, we have consistently in the post-war United States considered the press, higher education, science, public health to be, you know, sure, there's political squabbles always in those spaces, um, but that those are institutions that when they're thriving, they're aiding civic participation and they're aiding the expansion of, of democracy and debate. Um, often in a nonpartisan, an explicitly nonpartisan way, like public health, like we're going to get some vaccines. Mm. Everybody's going to get one, right? Life as a as a, a way to build civic participation is the, the core of the discussion. Every single one of those has come in for attack under this administration, not only this administration, but certainly I would say more pointed in this administration. That we've talked about. I'm curious to know how you think those institutions are doing with within what sorts of, I mean, universities haven't closed, history departments are still open, but how are history departments changing? The New York Times hasn't closed, Washington Post is doing okay, but 
how is the press changing? I'm curious because you're both very finely attuned to changes that were happening in Germany before World War II started. And I think a lot of people don't know as much about the earlier years or even before the, the rise of the Nazi party, that there must have been changes underway in German institutions that become much more visible after the fact. Rich, can I ask you that question first and then Richard? Sure. Um, I'm happy to draw analogies and I will draw analogies, but I think a, a couple of things are, we need to remember first, and that is changes in technology and changes in advertising have fundamentally altered the nature of the press. Newspapers simply can't be what they were before. And I think if most of your viewers just pick up the newspaper that they subscribe to, if they still subscribe, and look at it, they'll notice how thin it is and how few ads there are. So um, is most of the press still, is most of the written press still doing its best to cover things as well as possible? Yeah, I think so. Does that matter? Less than I think it would have um, before the age of the internet. Do universities try to be places where ideas are exchanged and students learn? Yes. But the changing demographics, the sorts of things that schools have been forced to spend money on, and by changing demographics, I simply mean the fewer, every year there are fewer 18-year-olds than there were before. And I think the problems we're seeing now with COVID and trying to figure out how to balance things, this is just a foreshadowing of what is going to happen to the American university system when, as a population, we shrink. We don't know what universities are going to look like. So um, our institutions are changing. And I think compared to what historians like to think of them as are weaker than they were before. I don't even think this is necessarily political. I think this is just structural. And I don't know where it's going. But I think we'll need new institutions. Richard, can I give you the same question? Thank you, Rich. Yeah, I'd like to, I mean, I can take sort of the historical um, perspective, which I think is, is rather interesting comparing what's, what we're experiencing today to, to Germany in the 20s and 30s, for example. Um, and that is actually something that is quite the opposite of what we have. We look at institutions in this country like universities, um, churches, for example, um, as being liberal as being you know open um tolerant more recently of course not it's not always been the case um but if you look at germany in the 20s and 30s um the opposite was the case um that mm. the universities including our area of, the, of history departments uh was extraordinarily conservative and nationalistic mm. um and same thing with the courts, because in part the, the, the revolution that established the democracy didn't get rid of those people who had had their jobs since the authoritarian system that preceded it. Mm. Um, and churches were also extraordinarily nationalistic, um, supportive of the state, and anti-Semitic. 
universities were extraordinarily anti-Semitic. In fact, the students at the universities were among the earliest supporters of the Nazis, and they had their biggest base of support there. So, in fact, that transition um, for, for Hitler was much easier. It required very little in terms of purging. The only people they really had to purge were Jews and socialists. Um, and unfortunately, most of their um, you know, Christian colleagues uh, did nothing uh, to protest because they either agreed or they, they didn't feel it was worth it. Um, the churches, again, required, they were the only institution that was not coordinated with the state because, again, it didn't have to be. Mm -hmm. um, the judiciary was already nationalistic. The one area where they changed in a very significant way was their willingness to change their attitude toward the law in essentially adapting it to whatever Hitler felt it to be. There had been this tradition in German history of, of the Reichstag, of a state governed by the rule of law. You don't like the law necessarily, but it's going to be administered, right, consistently. Um, there was a little bit of pushback initially, um, but the man who was the, who was the um, minister of justice uh, under the Nazis had been the minister of justice for before the Nazis came into power, and Hitler didn't see any need to get rid of them because he knew he could work with them. So what we have, I think, in that situation, which is, which is an advantage, is that these institutions, like universities, not administration, I'm not going to talk about that, but certainly within the departments, um, and I think within churches as well, not all of them, obviously, um, we still have a strong um, institutional connection to fairness, to the rule of law, right, to, to the ideas of equality before the law and tolerance and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. So, and that's, that's, I think, been one of the sources of the resistance in many respects. In our department, as soon as Trump came into office, we were being asked by students, both graduate and undergraduate students, to have teach-ins, to give yeah, talks, absolutely. to help them understand what's going on from a historical perspective. That never happened before, and we got tremendous, you know, audiences, tremendous responses to to that. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it just only continued since then. And so I think, you know, again, talk about reasons to be optimistic. You know, those those are if you look at who's supporting the resistance today, you know, that's there. And that hasn't that hasn't changed again in four years since Hitler uh, since uh, Trump took over. And again, if anything, that resistance has has strengthened because of what we've seen. So there are some, you know, there are some reasons to be, again, to be hopeful, I think. Just a reminder that we're listening to COVID calls, talking to Richard Frankel and Rich Bodak. We're almost up on time, but I want to get a couple more questions in if you guys don't don't mind and really enjoying this conversation. Um, Richard, I, we didn't talk quite enough for me um, about connecting COVID-19 as a global pandemic and anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly curious um, where you see it, what you think the pandemic enables um, in terms of anti-Semitism. I mean, we can point to examples here in the United States, the, the vaccine truthers. Mm -hmm. um, the, the truther movement is, I mean, it's in the United States Senate. As I saw yesterday, Joni Ernst believes only 9,000 people have died of COVID-19. Right. Um, and that is right next door to um, to the kinds of messages that we'll hear that'll say, 
Uh, there are vaccines out there, but they'll be produced um, by a cabal of Jewish um, epidemiologists and George Soros will fund them. And, and so there's, and I've heard both versions that only Jews will get vaccines or that um, Jewish vaccine makers will make a vaccine which will make other people right. sick. I mean, both exist in a, in a alternative universe, but there it is and it's circulating um, among channels um, that I think again are sort of maybe not in the room with Joni Ernst, but they're in the they're sort of in the room next door. They're on the web page next door. Can you say a little bit more about how you see this time, and particularly the convergence of COVID nineteen and anti semitism? Yeah, this is another area. You know, you, as German historians, we want to be of course relevant, but we don't want to be too relevant at the current times. Um, <laughs> another area in which my work is unfortunately become more relevant. What I'm working on right now, as you mentioned before, is in terms of globalization and anti-Semitism. This was a period in the late 19th century, early 20th century, when you had tremendous mobility. Uh, you had global labor markets established. You had global commodities markets. You had millions, tens of millions of people on the move, um, including Chinese coming to the United States, Jews coming to the United States from Europe. And one of the things that became very much a part of the anti-immigration movement um, was the, you know, in, in, in trying to limit or exclude completely immigrants who people felt were not American enough or couldn't be Americanized. Of course, you had in 1882, you had the Chinese based basically on just race. Um, but, you know, in other ways to do that, one of which was health, right? If we can, you know, demonstrate that certain groups of people are, have a, you know, to certain diseases, um, we can justify excluding them based on that. And so they started to establish health requirements and give health exams in the United States. And Jews who were coming in uh, from Germany, uh, from Eastern Europe, had to go through Germany um, to get to the United States. If they got to the United States and were found to be uh, unhealthy, they would be sent back. And they'd be sent back at the expense of the steamship companies. And Germany, for example, didn't want to be stuck with stateless Jews from Eastern Europe in their country, and the steamship companies didn't want to have to pay for a return trip. Uh, and so what you had was a kind of system where Germany and eventually the steamship companies themselves established a whole system of sanitary sanitation checks on the border, sanitation stations, um, um, fumigation and so forth, delousing of immigrants, and that very practice of mm. doing a certain practice that is clearly connected to the disease with a clearly distinguishable group like Jews meant that they were going to be associated with that disease, right? Mm. Or with disease generally. They're carriers of disease and therefore they're dangerous. Uh, and that is in fact what happened. And so that's one area where I'm looking at in mm. terms of globalization stimulating anti-Semitism. It took place in Germany and it took place in the United States and they were very much aware of each other, feeding off of both anti-Chinese and anti-Jewish rhetoric. Uh, and what you see today, unfortunately, is also a connection between Chinese and COVID, of course, being pushed by Trump, um, but also Jews, right? And I just wrote about this actually, I just sent it off the other day. If you look at the situation in New York, Right, in Jewish neighborhoods, Orthodox neighborhoods particularly, where Jews were of not taking the health restrictions seriously, 
Uh, not true, the individuals perhaps, but certainly not as a group. And you had you know, all kinds of online slanders against the Jewish communities there, and in fact, violence. Jews were physically assaulted in the streets uh, in New York as a result of this, this kind of linkage. Uh, and I think you know, Soros is, is convenient, you know, any way you want to connect it. Um, but certainly, I think there's a connection that we're seeing, unfortunately, now in an environment, a globalized environment that is very similar to what we saw in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and again, I started that project again before COVID-19, and unfortunately right. you see it playing out, you know, right. in, in, in terms of Chinese and Jews. So certainly the racism, the anti-Semitism, it's, it's, it's tailor-made for it. Mm. Yeah, I would add that in the modern world, the symbol of the Jew, or the symbols of the Jew are both really interesting and sort of really um, sort of meaningful and frightening. Jews stand for hypermodernity for the most modern things. So um, modern technology, modern capitalism. For those people who feel that the past is better than the present and the future will be even worse, Jews are a symbol of everything that is and will go wrong. At exactly the same time, Jews stand for this a past. They are stuck in a past and can't get out of it. And that's exactly where Richard was going, where, ah, these Orthodox, look what they're doing. They're paying no attention to science. And people can and do hold these opposite opinions, um, the, these opposite ideas, at the same time, Jews for people who are uncomfortable with modernity are figures of fear. And they, the Jews seem to be picking up this, or Jews are given this role again now in much the same way as they were the first part of the 20th century in ways that a lot of people had really thought and hoped was over. It's back. So um, last thing I wanted to get to, thank you both for that. Uh, Rich, um, I noted in your, um, your bio, you had published a translation of a 1932 novel, and I'm gonna really butcher the German here, Was wird das deinen Kindern, which uh, was uh, Claire Bergman's 1932 novel, What Will Become of the Children. It really stuck out to me because one of the things that I think we haven't explored enough um, in the United States right now are the ways that artists, writers, um, artists of any genre, but let's, let's talk about writers, are finding a voice in this moment. And I've been thinking a lot about COVID and, and what great novels must be being written literally right now, in part because writers can't get out and do all the fun things that keep them from getting their novels done. Um, this this must be a time of artistic production. Again, I know when we think with analogies, we can sometimes go astray, and I don't want to necessarily say moments of political oppression are necessary to have great art. And yet at the same time, I know, Rich, there must be something about that novel and the timing that drew you to it. So can you talk a little bit about that, that, or if you want to talk a little bit about literature at this, this moment, I'm sort of curious to come at that, that angle on this moment we're living in. Sure. And um, what what will become of the children? It, it, translating that for me was an act of 
of kind of, of, of love and respect. Claire Bergman wrote an anti-fascist novel and published it in October of 1932, an anti-Nazi novel. And it gets well-reviewed in the, in the democratic German press and then just disappears after the Nazis take power. There are, from what I understand, fewer than 20 copies left in the world. I was able to get my hands on one and I translated because I didn't want the Nazis even to have that kind of posthumous victory. So it exists. And I, as many people who want to read it, that, that makes me happy. Was it a great novel? No, it wasn't. It was a novel of the moment. It was not great. It was significant. And so the one place I would push you back a little bit is uh, I think there will be a great COVID novel maybe 15 or 20 years from now. In the same way that the great World War II novels, the great mm -hmm. Vietnam novels, people need reflection. We're too close. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're, I, I'd love to keep going, but I've overstayed my welcome with your time uh, and have learned a lot today. And this, this has been a great discussion. Rich Bodek and Richard Frankel, thank you so much for coming on COVID Calls today to talk about authoritarianism and COVID-19, and maybe we should reconvene this conversation after the first week in November yeah. and talk a little bit more about what I thought was to me this really provocative question. Um, what institutions will be necessary in the moment, let's suppose the election uh, goes the way, at least the polls are looking today, that doesn't mean that democracy springs back to life overnight. And I thought that was a really important part of what we talked about today. Thank you very much, both of you, for your time today. No, thank, thank you for having us. I want to remind people that you can listen to COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about, from an engineering perspective, COVID in the air and the water uh, with Chuck Haas, an engineer at Drexel University. So please join me for that tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Everybody stay healthy and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks again.